Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Imagine you're relaxing, settling in to watch a little TV for the night, and your snack on this particular night is jelly beans, all different colors mixed together in a bowl. Do you think you would eat any more or less if the jelly beans were separated out into different bowls depending on their color? Now, it may sound like a crazy question until you realize that science says you would. When the colors are all mixed up, people eat about twice as many jelly beans. That's good trivia for a cocktail party, but it also tells us a lot about how our decisions around food intersect with our brain and why so many of us struggle to make the right decisions. And in a country where obesity has doubled in the last few decades and more than 70% are now overweight or obese, understanding what food does to our brains has become very important. Rachel Hers is the author of the book, Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. She's a neuroscientist and teaches at Brown University. Rachel, thanks for being here. Great to be here, Kara. So let me pick up on that jelly bean study. What does that study tell you about us and about our brains? <laughs> so it's actually, I mean, it does tell us about our brains, but it really tells us about our psychology and how we're influenced by what we see when we eat, because there's an enormous impact of the visual cues around us that tell us things about food and how that influences and motivates us to consume. And what you talked about was the fact that when colors are all mixed together, there looks like there's more variety. And when there's more variety, we're more attracted. Whereas if we see only, let's say, the red jelly beans by themselves or the yellow jelly beans by themselves, it looks more boring. And so we're not as inclined to keep engaging with it as when there's a jumble of colors. And this has to do with something called sensory-specific satiety. And in mm -hmm. this case, we're getting satiated by what are eyes are seeing. So it's like if you had a dish with just like one clump of food in it, you know, it's not as appealing as lots of little things. Right. You you um, write about this thing that's fascinating called the, the Delboeuf illusion, where the size of the plate, which you would think, what I, you know, I can overlook the size of a plate. That doesn't matter. It completely changes how our brain processes um, how much food we're eating. You want to talk about that? Sure. So this is a, an illusion. It's a very well-known, famous illusion. It's a very simple illustration. So if we have, let's say, a scoop of pasta in a plate that is a big plate, that pasta looks smaller mm -hmm. than that same scoop of gnocchi with pesto on a small plate. Mm -hmm. And so because we think that, you know, when we've eaten more food, that that's a signal that, okay, that's enough and that looks like it was it was big and therefore I can be fine with that— when it's on a larger plate, we don't think we've gotten as much, and we then are much more likely to serve ourselves more, especially when we can self-serve, because mm -hmm. we use the circle of the plate as a cue to, you know, how much is the right amount, and if the circle of the plate is bigger, then we put more on the plate. And studies bear this out. Like, the more you give people, and, and also, you know, what they perceive they're getting, it totally impacts. Like, this, norm, this idea that, oh, you have a certain amount of hunger and a certain amount of food will satiate you— it just, it seems like study after study shows that is not right. 
that is not right. That's exactly that's exactly right. It is not right. We our bodies do not respond in sort of neat physiological rules where you've given me this many calories, my body burns it, I know how much I've consumed, I therefore feel full. And I think one of the most fascinating things about research connected to this is how we can be tricked with labels that tell us about calories and indulgence and sort of sumptuousness of what mm-hmm. we've eaten mm-hmm. to the point where we actually burn more calories when what we're th- we think we're eating is really rich and decadent than if we're eating the exact same thing, but we think it's, you know, sensible and low calorie. Really? I don't even know how that would work, but somehow your brain is telling your body, like, work up more of a sweat or just burn off more calories doing this run than normal because you just ate an ice cream? Well, it's actually a little, not quite like that, but it is basically just a giant placebo effect, but over something that you'd think you wouldn't have any conscious control over, which is your metabolism. Right, right. But in this case, it has to do with ghrelin levels, and ghrelin is the hunger hormone, so it it rises as we get hungrier, and then technically, you know, when we eat, it should fall, and when ghrelin levels fall, it raises our metabolism, so we burn off the calories of what we've just eaten. Mm -hmm. But what this research showed was that purely by changing the label of a milkshake in this case that was, in fact, 340 calories, so not negligible in calories, but in one case was labeled as 620 indulgent, decadent calories, and in another case was labeled as like 140 sensible, you know, zero fat, zero added sugar kind of thing, Mm -hmm. that when people were drinking this milkshake that they thought was a super calorie extravaganza, their Mm -hmm. ghrelin levels plummeted after consuming it, and therefore their metabolism revved up. Compared to when they thought it was just this sensible, low-calorie thing, their ghrelin levels didn't move. So Mm. it was just like it was like flatlining. And so that, to me, is really incredible. (laughs) What does this say to you about self-control? Because we talk uh, a lot about, you know, don't eat so much of this. or You know, that's like the advice, right? Don't eat so much of this or try to avoid this or whatever. Well, that that has to do with conscious not eating something or whatever. But I just wonder how much we're talking about feedback from parts of our body that we're not even aware of. And so if we're talking about stuff that we're not aware of and that's subconscious versus actions people are telling us to take consciously, how those things play out or do battle. So willpower and self-control, we all differ in how much we have of it. But it turns out that there's a fair bit of research that shows that willpower is actually taking up mental energy in and of itself. So it's hard to to say, no, I am not going to have that second slice of pizza when you really want it. Or no, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to have that brownie for dessert even though you really want it. Mm -hmm. Or no, I'm just kind of standing here in the break room and there's a tray of danishes and (laughs) not really hungry, but I really want it. Right, right. So Depending on how much other stress you have in your life, and also it doesn't have to even be – it could be emotional stress, which certainly is going to help push you over to the comfort food domain. But it could also be that you're really engaged in some kind of work project that's really demanding intellectually and you've really been expending Hmm. a lot of sort of brain calories in terms of doing it. You're less likely to be able to really resist the danishes at that point than you would be if you were doing something less – mentally taxing. Mm -hmm. And so it seems as if there's sort of this sort of uh, limited amount of resource we have at any one given moment. Mm -hmm. And if it's too divided, Mm -hmm. then our willpower is probably going to be the one thing that falls off. Mm. But it could also be, depending on what your temptations are, you could have multiple different temptations at the same time. And then there'd be sort of a hierarchy. So I know that some 
legislators, some people in in public policy have thought, well, one solution, post calories, because if you tell people like, oh, a sandwich is 500 calories, and then you see another sandwich that's like 1,200 calories, you might not realize it by eyeing it. But when you see the numbers, you realize, oh, I guess it's a lot bigger. I guess this has, you know, a lot more calories in it. Um, Have we seen that work? Does telling people, does giving people signals by giving them numbers work? Well, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to work very well. Just giving people calorie information, there was actually a big study done in the metro New York City area, also around New Jersey, on fast food restaurants, and whether or not posting calorie content, this was before it was mandated, Mm -hmm. would have an impact on what people ate. And although people said that they noticed it initially, and it might have sort of had a little bit of a, a bell it really didn't have much of an impact on how they consumed food and over time sort of washed out. Mm -hmm. But what was encouraging from another set of studies that were done actually in Baltimore in lower socioeconomic districts, looking at how adolescents were purchasing sugary beverages and, you know, junk food from convenience stores, is that posting, they checked different kinds of information relative to energy consumption. And it was found that posting the number of miles you'd need to walk to burn off that soda that was the most effective in terms of changing people's behavior so that they bought right. less soda, more right. water, different kinds of things. And so that, you know, different ways of, pre- you know, presenting that information, I think, right. is really key. Right. Which actually makes sense because what is 300 calories anyway? To most people, it has no meaning. But if you say, like, oh, if you drink this drink, you'll have to walk two miles to work it off. You think two miles? That's really far. I don't know if this drink is worth it. Yeah, and I think what was also really neat about this study is that the miles to walk were most effective for for these adolescents, Mm. but maybe in different markets or different demographics, different information, like how many miles you'd have to run or how many tennis matches you'd have to play or how long you'd have to spend in your spinning class. Like, I think sort of tailoring this to the market is actually probably important, but and I think this is the most valuable kind of information to give people. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Rachel Hers, an assistant professor at Brown University and author of the book, Why You Eat, What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. We also talk a lot, obviously, in this country about sugar and salt. And so I want to take them one by one. Sugar first. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how bad it is for you, really, how it acts on your brain. Uh, Because once upon a time, sugar was considered both a luxury and actually kind of good for you, good for your body, and things have totally switched around. So I want to just start this whole section by saying that I have a bit of a problem with all the nutritional and medical advice that comes out on a daily basis Mm -hmm. and then seems to change on an almost daily basis. Mm -hmm. And my bottom line for dealing with all of this is to, you know, sound cliche, take it with a grain of salt, but also to... (laughs) But also to use common sense. (laughs) So common sense is really the place I think we should all be coming from and not jumping on the bandwagon of the latest, don't do this, or, you know, this is the right amount, this is the number you want to be at, or, you know, no more than this, but, and then tomorrow it'll be something different and good versus bad and so forth. So with respect to sugar, even if you don't really have that much of a sweet tooth, a little sweet taste makes us feel a little happier and a little nicer, and we're actually does make us 
at least temporarily, somewhat more agreeable with other people, <laughs> which is why yeah. if you're doing an important demonstration or having a meeting where you want to get people all aligned together and or especially with you, bringing sweet treats to that meeting can actually have a very real impact on how people are going to interact with you and what you're presenting. So eating a little sweet does make us nicer. It does make us a little kinder and more receptive to each other. And so have a little sugar. That That is a very good tip that if you want people to agree with you, bring donuts <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you about salt, because I've always had, you know, just as a layperson, I've kind of followed some of the research around salt. Um, it used to be, I feel like, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, people really thought salt is terrible. Try, try to get it out of your diet as much as possible. But but studies have not really borne that out, that as much salt as you can get out of your diet is a great thing. So can you give me a sense of how much should we be worrying about salt? How much is salt a problem? What does the research show? Okay, well, I just want to tell you about a study that was done in mice, which said, you know, high salt is bad. So that, but again, this was done in mice. So we also have to be careful when we're extrapolating from different species and how that affects Mm -hmm. humans. And on the same token, I want to talk about a study that showed that what the American Heart Association says is the amount of salt that is the healthy amount you should be in this zone or lower for hypertension purposes and all kinds of other purposes. And compare people who are actually adhering to that versus people who are in the middle zone. So having more, but not, you know, extreme amounts. Mm -hmm. And then people who are in the highest amount, that people who are in the middle, again, like this Goldilocks effect, they were the healthiest. So they were healthier with respect to all these heart indices and so forth than the people who were actually adhering to the American Heart Association mandates. So if you're in the middle, you know, you're not super, you know, low, but you're not super high in the middle, that seems to be fine and that seems to be the healthiest. Now, what's not known is whether or not people who were in the middle zone were also just having other aspects of their lives that were healthier. So in general, they were healthier because they sort of had a more balanced response to food overall. One of the other things about salt, though, that's a little insidious, and I actually am a person who loves salt, and I can tell you that this is the definite loop that it follows, is that the more salt we use, the more salt we like, and the more salt we want. And we can actually put ourselves on a salt diet if we were so inclined to reduce the amount of salt that we consume, and then actually won't want as much salt to eat. Um, You talk about this classic map of our tongue, which I've always sort of had in the back of my mind, always known was was a thing where there's salty and sour and sweet and bitter in different parts of our tongue. But it turns out, actually, that's not how our tongue works in terms of uh, perceiving taste. Why does that myth or why does that belief exist that we sort of have this quadrant, our tongue is in quadrants? (laughs) Yeah, so this is, I think, an example of how when you have a really neat, easy, simple, pretty illustration (laughs) that that takes hold. It's almost like science marketing. You know, Mm -hmm. that tongue map was just such a simple way of explaining things and such an easy way for kids to learn about the tongue. It even shows up even still in college textbooks about, you know, where the senses of taste and different tastes are processed. So I think because it was such a simple illustration of it that that it just persisted, even though since the 70s, it has been known to be wrong, but that banner has not been waved around enough to mm. sort of really make its way wow. well enough into the general zeitgeist to, for us to say, okay, stop thinking that. We can actually taste everything equally everywhere in our tongue. Huh. And it all started with a mistranslation from an old German study <laughs> that was done in the 1950s from the study that was done in like the early 1900s that 
just misinterpreted what the study found. And as a function of that, this tongue map was born, and it has been very difficult to undo. But you can taste everything equally everywhere in your tongue. Hmm. So you spend a lot of time looking at all these studies, whether it's the jelly bean study or there are studies showing that if you sit nearer to the buffet, you're probably going to eat more than people who sit further away from the buffet. I just wonder if you've got a couple of tips for somebody who's they're trying to take more control over the food that they eat. Um, and, and maybe there's a couple of sort of easy starting points for them. Well, I think the number one to not overuse a word that is overused these days is to use a tiny bit of mindfulness with respect to food. And that is to say, don't put food around you in circumstances where you're going to be distracted. Like Mm. while you're watching TV, having the bowl of potato chips or jelly beans or whatever. Keep food away from that kind of environment. Also keep these sort of high-calorie treats away from your desk so that you're not going to be sort of just mindlessly putting your hand in and, you know, sticking, you know, eating without being aware of what you're eating. And that Mm -hmm. can make it much less pleasurable, actually, what you're consuming. You're not getting the same kind of hedonic reward from it, but you're also not even noticing what you're eating. And so you Mm -hmm. can eat a lot more that Mm -hmm. way. And if you do need to have something to munch on, you know, put celery sticks or something there instead. Mm. So the first thing I think you can do is sort of move food a little further from you. So not make it so easy to just sort of mindlessly eat things. And Along that same line, sort of try to be more engaged with what you're eating when you're eating it. So if you're paying attention to the food you're eating, you're going to get much more bang for your buck from it. You're going to feel the creaminess. You're going to get more sweetness. You're going to get more savory deliciousness. And when you're aware of that, you can feel satiated sooner than if you're not paying attention to those kinds of cues and you're just kind of, you know, eating away without really taking in the full experience. So those are some just really simple kind of just within you and food environment kinds of ways to do it. Hmm. Rachel Hers is a neuroscientist. She's an assistant professor at Brown University, and she's the author of the book, Why You Eat, What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. Rachel, thank you so much. Kara, it's been a delight. Thank you. We've got articles about the mythical tongue map and why we eat more when we've got a variety of food. That's on our website, innovationhub.org.